Welcome to the Asian Education Podcast, which is a forum for discussing research on education and related social issues in Asian context. It also seeks to provide Asian perspectives on global debates over education policy and practice. The Asian Education Podcast is produced by the UNESCO Chair on Education for Peace, Social Justice, and Global Citizenship at Kyushu University in association with the Comparative Education Society of Asia. So in this episode of the Asian Education Podcast, following the previous episode, we are joined by Professor Anita Rampal, former Dean of the Faculty of Education at Delhi University. I am Yoko Mochizuki, co-hosting this episode with Gairam Pamey. Last time, we talked about the history of India's quest for quality education for all and how the education policy landscape has changed since the 1990s, with the remarkable rise of corporate foundations, philanthropies, and entrepreneurs. So, Anita, as a way of recapturing some of our discussions last time, Could you tell us your take on UNESCO's Global Education Monitoring Report 2021-2022 on non-state actors in education? Yes, uh, I think when it talks about India, it talks in a very uncritical way. And it's clubbing all these service providers, some people which are doing low-cost schools, some people which are completely changing the policy ecosystem of our country and damaging it in that way from a, a rights-based approach. It is, it's actually junking the right and damaging it. And then everyone is put under the same basket, under the same term. Um, this is problematic because what happens is that the different motivations of different actors, which can really shape or undo what a country is trying to do, for instance, a country like ours, uh, gets put in that same basket and then we find that uh, GEMR becomes the ultimate uh, statement, the ultimate uh, jury on what is happening, which is useful and needs to be promoted. And all our policy gets pegged to that without looking at what the actual concerns are and how many of these proposals and many of these interventions can actually be damaging to the system. Thanks so much, Anita, for that recap. Those listeners who would like to know more about the Global Education Monitoring Report on non-state actors, please check out the previous episode. So, Anita, last time you elaborated on what quality education means for educationists like yourself and for new non-state actors who push for learning assessments, privatization, and often digital learning. Today, we would like to turn to educational technology or edtech, which is often embraced as a means for democratizing education for the poor in the Indian context. The government of India is supporting the use of artificial intelligence, digital platforms, machine learning, and adaptive assessments of students. Can we begin by asking you to talk about some of the ethical implications of the use of edtech and digital data? Yes, uh, you know, we have resisted uh, our large and our amazingly burgeoning tech, uh, computer industry for many years in trying to uh, find 
you know, its hold on education as a captive body, because you can always say, and there was one year when planning process, our five-year plans were getting made in the planning commission. And in one of the groups, a very leading tech computer industry person had come and uh, had a major role and said that for teacher education, it's such a long process. We, we don't know when we'll get the teachers, but allocate a lot of money for a teacher uh, orientation through computers. And then uh, a lot of questions were asked, you know, what does that mean? Because I myself know the minister, some people in the ministry would come to me when I was the dean of the Delhi University faculty and say that, you know, you have such good people here, two, three of your people, if only we can make uh, video recordings of your lectures. So many of our people in different districts where they don't have teachers, you know, they can. So there was this so-called, it always comes in a very benign, do-good kind of well-intentioned way, you know, the way technology gets pushed, as if you're always doing some good and you're uh, you're democratizing education. I hear people saying that without understanding zero, you know, anything about education. Uh, young people are coming now, um, very enthusiastic. People want to do startups and they say they'll make an online platform to democratize education. I mean, that is what the kind of discourse which we are facing and we've been facing for some time, but right now, uh, especially after COVID, I mean, when it just got legitimacy from the government, when poor parents were saying that open schools now in the villages, now COVID is under control, the middle class was saying, no, 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 it's being overprotective about its children in cities, especially, and said, no. Uh, so the public schools also were not opening. And, and the private schools, of course, the parents said, we'll send children only when they get vaccinated, which was a completely bizarre uh, logic to give because children didn't need vaccination, nor were vaccinations there for children. So I'm saying even... We had one of the longest lockdowns of school, more than two years, you know, I mean, and completely our schools in the rural areas, we did surveys of the most disadvantaged areas where schools were in a bad shape, children were totally without any contact with anyone. So, you know, they were hit the most. What does it mean to say go online? You know, when there are no uh, signals, there are no devices, even if they're devices, there's hardly any connectivity. Children have fallen from trees trying to get, climb up to get a signal. So I'm just saying that, you know, the, the fact that you can completely wish away the poor or the unconnected or the offline, these children were called offline in our in our discourse, that these were the offline children. They were completely ignored and abandoned, devastatingly abandoned. So that is when this thing has become... So now, now the legitimacy that you can go ahead with education and in fact, you can go ahead with much more marketization and privatization of education through the uh, through online has now taken hold of the policy and the government. So our in our higher education system also, the government says that whatever course you're doing, 50% uh, of your credits of your undergraduate course, you can get from anyone from an online shop or a teaching shop anywhere, doesn't matter. So, you know, the kind of legitimacy that they're giving to online education is going to dismantle our public system, even our best universities, because you can't design a good course when you know that half your students can take half their credits. And the government spent more time in giving out lists, the University Grants Commission has given lists to all the universities that these are the providers who can be content creators. 
So now you don't have to be academics to create content, even for higher education. You can be a company, you can be a, a, an online shop. So I'm saying that this has has become almost like a a a, a point, a, a you know, a fault line where we had been resisting it, but because of COVID, now suddenly it has got its its hold on the system, and now there's a legitimacy. So uh, in school, of course, and the problem is that uh, the fact that uh, there is a question of privacy of the child, of the teacher, is being completely ignored, even at the level of uh, using CCTV and streaming it on the parent's phone. Delhi government is going to town telling us that it's, it's streaming this and it's talking to poor parents and saying, see, you can keep an eye on your child. So the child, you can make sure that the child is in a secure place. Whereas that creates such a climate of distrust for a teacher in a classroom. I mean, if you're being watched by not just big brother, but big father and big mother, I mean, you know, you can imagine what kind of a classroom can you have? where you have trust and freedom and children are not performing for the for the parents or for anyone who's watching. So that is what Delhi government is doing. And when anyone questions them, there was a again a, 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 a public in interest litigation in the court and they just dismissed it saying that no one is doing anything private in the school. So, you know, there's no question of privacy. So teachers are also feeling the burden. Teachers are being constantly kept on they have to mandatorily use apps on their phone, which gives their location. They have to use an app. Now they're being told that their attendance, one state said that you have to take your attendance with a selfie and geotag it with your location. And they say this, this is not good for our security and we don't want our personal our locations and all, but the surveillance and the kind of data surveillance that is coming in through this is extremely uh, it's almost dystopian as far as I'm concerned. If we look at the way they're using data, uh, children's data, all data has been taken by the state, by Delhi. Their, their mobile numbers, the type of the house, the tenancy, the everything about the family has been taken by the government. And uh, they don't tell you to which third party they're giving it. There are no regulations. And they keep, they use it for political leverage because on the child's birthday they send out a letter saying oh we wish you happy birthday and we wish you will do good good work like our party does <laughs> you know so i mean there are nice benign ways in which you use this data but it is very scary very very disturbing that people are not looking at this much more and uh, uh, also this whole thing about adaptive assessments you know that has also got a lot of uh, sort of thrust and uh, space in, in this discourse. Uh, and I recently saw a state minister who kept saying, without knowing what that meant, kept saying, we've done all the assessments of children using artificial intelligence. He didn't know the implications of that. And I think that is just becoming like a one-upmanship. We are more technologically savvy because we're doing all assessments using artificial intelligence, not knowing that adaptive assessment is not a good way of assessing children. The algorithms that use this kind of assessment can be biased. We know algorithms are biased in many different evidence-based <laughs> research that has been done, but also because 
uh, these algorithms then which are what is being pushed in the market language as personalized assessment customized assessment is so damaging because it is recording children's data it's recording minute things which even the teacher or anyone else can't see the parents can't see every uh, hesitant push of the button every pause every long second that a child takes everything is being recorded on the one level that is datafying a child and someone is making money out of that you know people who are devising these algorithms make money by selling that data but on the other the child gets something which is learning and assessment is not an individual activity at all just like we say you don't learn by staring at a blackboard or a screen uh similarly you don't get get assessed just individually by what you have done uh so learning is a is a social activity is a constructivist activity you make sense of something when you're talking to people around you uh someone says something someone gives a doubt someone else shows uh, frowns at something and then everyone they're learning reaches another higher level is what our learning theories tell us and similarly assessment assessment has to be tied to that learning process if assessment is tied to just some worksheets which look at how fast you did and then give you another worksheet calling it personalized assessment it's not tied to the learning process at all and it's not good assessment so uh, both ways i mean taking so much data and datafication of children is damaging and really worrying on the other hand this kind of assessment is not good assessment and neither does it give the teacher a sense of where things are going nor nor does it give a child that my learning is not alone i learn by speaking interacting working uh, disagreeing uh, you know uh, questioning people around me other peers around me people with different abilities not homogenized into uh, the way that uh, they claim they do so in every way it's damaging uh dr rampal you talked about the problems and limitations of education technology and algorithmic assessments so now i would like us to turn to similarly related large scale learning assessments which have become central and popular to discussions on education reforms in india as well as globally uh what do you think are some of the troubling implications of participating in pisa by oecd especially for countries in the global south or elsewhere for that matter yes uh i think that's very critical for us because right now oecd is being looked upon as a global governor of education in this regime of uh assessments and this regime of a lot of non-state actors having uh you know a major say in what curriculum should look like so that's why these assessments are something that for instance in our country in india we had resisted this in 2009 when uh, uh, india was being pushed to enter and one of the reasons was that a uh, right to education act was just coming in and our country our ministry rightly said that we have so much to do uh, and focus on in terms of our own context our own needs and we have not got good quality for our children so we don't see why sh we should be now entering into an international race because that distorts the whole process of teaching and learning and the pressure gets skewed in terms of what where our focus should be and our resources where they should go 
so I want to say that what is critical is that it's not just, it's important for countries of the global south because our socio-cultural, economic, historical contexts are very different. And uh, we need to understand that even if it's something like mathematics or science, uh, which claims, you know, which these international bodies claim is acultural and it's international, it is not. Uh, for education, we really focus on uh, uh, our own cultural moorings before children can make sense of the world around them, whatever be the subject. But OECD, OECD countries, and uh, a major eminent sort of academics had called for a stop to PISA in 2014. And they had written an open letter to the director saying that uh, this da dangerously narrows our collective imagination about what education is and what it ought to be. And these were countries mostly from the global north. And they said that moreover, OECD's for-profit partners, you know, a lot of this non-state actors and the whole host of uh, these bodies, they stand to gain financially from any deficits, real or perceived, unearthed by PISA. And I was quoting this statement, which came out as an open letter. It came out uh, uh, even in The Guardian and uh, other journals. So I'm saying that uh, for people to understand that it's education, which is not something which can be programmed for a large scale assessment where you think of those kinds of skills to be looked at, you know, which can be, uh, uh, which are programmable and which are measurable. So uh, that limits your imagination. And then there are many things tied to education, whether it's also children's understanding, whether it's social harmony, whether it's sensibilities of people, uh, how they look at something called natural resources, how they look at the environment, the planet, their connections with it. All these things cannot be tested through large-scale assessments. Uh, so that is what academics had been raising. And I can give you the... So luckily, we did not enter then. And uh, India right now announced that it will in 2021. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it sort of very uh, strategically limited it to only one small part of the country, which is a union territory and which has more privileged schools which are directly under the center so it thought that it will showcase just one small little part of the country but covid and because of options to the school system it has now decided not to go in for this cycle it did not go in for this cycle in 2023 and uh, may not do so next year too but i'm just saying that uh, the i have uh, very close uh, connections with indonesia which had invited me to review uh, this whole challenge of how their curricula were getting changed and shaped because of their participation in PISA for over 20 years. And they, even though they're not an OECD country, but they were inducted in by partners, the non-state partners, because it's surrounded by these countries and especially Australia and these other countries, which then advised them and they had been pushing them to take PISA. So, you know, there's a large advocacy, sea of advocacy where countries and their and organizations uh, within those countries are advising other smaller countries and countries of small global south to not smaller, but sorry, uh, countries of the global south to enter these international tests. So they had 
uh, when they revised their curricula and I looked at them, I was quite alarmed because instead of building capacities, enhancing capacities of the whole system, which is teacher educators, curriculum developers, teachers, you know, it's a huge task to understand the different languages and different knowledges which children are bringing with them into the school system. It's a huge task and not concentrating on that, but just changing suddenly your textbooks and then going in for multiple choice questions, it doesn't serve any purpose. And for all these years, they have stayed at the bottom. This last studies uh, tell us that 92% of children in Indonesia come in the lowest quarter, the lowest achieving uh, in the in the bottom. So uh, at the bottom. So, you know, what is happening? A lot of money is spent. Every country is supposed to spend huge amounts of funds to affiliate to the OECD and then to conduct uh, the preparation and translations and everything within the country. These are not small funds, funds, you know, these are huge amounts. So that also is a burden on your system. So you, plus, as I noticed, they've got so deflected by PISA that all their school examinations and a national examination are all multiple choice questions. Now, that is so bizarre. I mean, you can't have children in primary school uh, doing only multiple choice questions at part of their school exams, because how do you express yourselves? How do you show your understanding, you know, uh, only as ticking some boxes? And that's what they're doing, whether it's science, math, or language. So that is something which is shaping the way curricula are made and more crucially shaping national patterns of assessment into something which is so narrow and so superficial and does not allow uh, the teachers and children to actually build understanding and look at questions from their own context. So, so this is something which has uh, been worrying. And interestingly, in 2019, OECD itself comes out with a report which says that after so much money has been spent, uh, most of the OECD countries do not show much improvement in students' learning. So what is, so people now who are really questioning these policies and these uh, interventions are saying, what is the purpose of all this? If 26 countries out of 79 have almost 25 to 50% of their children in the lowest bottom category of performance, what is it that is happening? And why is it that people are not able to get out of this. I think it's a trap when you get into it because I've seen what's happened to Indonesia. And I don't think we as a country should at all enter this race. We are resisting even standardized national testing. In a country like ours, even standardized national testing is uh, does more harm than benefit to teachers and children. Uh, so I think that this is something which is crucial. And I think we need more studies coming out of different countries, especially countries which are getting pushed and sucked into this competitive understanding of what learning is. Okay. And in your forthcoming publication, which we have the privilege to read, you've written that corporate and philanthropic partners of OECD have a monopoly on the global business of learning. So could you please elaborate on how PISA exemplifies what you have characterized or written as corporate colonization of the school curriculum? Uh, 
And <clears throat> how is PISA instrumental in advancing the ed tech and digitalization agenda? Yes. So as I hinted uh, earlier, uh, when uh, academics from uh, OECD countries from the Global North questioned and said that it's helping your business partners to make more profit, whether there is a deficit or not, you know, that's the way you're conducting it. What happens now is that the entire, uh, when we see the discourse on curriculum uh, and on policy, and not just that, countries get, it's, it's, a, it's a cognitive economic model because World Bank lending gets tied to learning outcomes and learning outcomes in international tests. You see, so the entire thing is tied to what outcomes you show. Uh, this makes it the entire, you know, it's like a corporate management because most of these companies, I mean, if you if you see a lot has been written about Pearson, uh, it's documented the role that they've played and how they themselves as a huge company, they call themselves uh, the biggest learning company in the world, uh, but uh, the global learning company. But what's happened is that instead of working on inputs like textbooks and, you know, they were doing that work more, they've now shifted to outcomes-based, uh, uh, you know, work uh, from their, in terms of their company. And so what happens is that the most, more of these companies come in and the funding agencies, they, they sort of bring them in, in, you know, they sort of invoke them into the lending process and also into joining this already growing uh, business of low-cost private schools for the poor. And we see that in our own country. We see advocates for testing, advocates for learning outcomes are the same people, the same non-state partners that we have been discussing earlier, who then bring in other agencies uh, to show us you know, in what way uh, profit can be made and in what way low-cost schools can be expanded. So they bring in Bridge Academy, they bring in uh, organizations which have been documented to have created, had problems with the nations, with different countries where they were running, but they bring them in as models to see how at very low cost you can run schools without very qualified teachers because the agenda gets so limited. You know, the agenda is just as if you can program a child's learning. So the the problem is also that the whole system of designing a curriculum, and especially with ed tech coming in, the mm -hmm. imagination of what learning is and what the learner is about. These are all, these all come from a certain paradigm of the, you know, the modernist Western male kind of, I mean, these are literally, and the algorithms, the algorithms are also biased and the people working with these algorithms also then come with a very narrow understanding. So when you look at these kinds of questions and you look at the curricula, you see that the context is so limited. It's it's shocking to see that being asked to someone in Chile or someone in Mexico or someone uh, in Indonesia, you know, I mean, those kinds of questions which have no meaning for children, whereas it is not true that children don't know. Children who come from artisanal homes, they come from uh, working class families, uh, for instance, know a lot of mathematics in practice mm -hmm. from what they're doing. And they can do it really well 
but because the system gets so limited in terms of how it's directing the teacher's attention, in fact, teachers get deprofessionalized in all this because the standardization removes their agency in trying to contextualize, in trying to bring in local understandings and local purposes of learning. So uh, this is something that now is being questioned more and more in terms of uh, the, the the gendering of certain knowledges in terms of the exclusion of people and their understanding and their relationships with the world, whether it's uh, environment or whether it's mathematics. You know, people, we, for instance, I just would like to say that in our last phase of textbook curriculum, curriculum and textbook revision, we don't talk of natural resources as, a, as if it's something absolute and up there. We talk about people's lives which are tied to this. So in our textbooks, we talk about fish workers. We talk about people living in the forest. We talk about masons. We talk, you know, about junk sellers. And through their lives, we let other students who may be in urban environments or maybe in different environments where they don't really, their lives don't impinge upon, say, the sea or a forest or something that that nature and the environment brings to you. Uh, through these children's lives and through the textbook context, they understand these things. They can empathize and they can uh, relate with these ideas. It's not as if it's some, some definition that they have to just uh, learn and spew out in an exam which asks them about something about a forest or something about the environment or the planet. So the question is that when we understand that learning happens, when you relate something with your experience, when you actually engage something with your agency and your understanding, similarly, assessment also needs to be doing that. And so standardized assessment or standardized curricula and especially competitive uh, large-scale assessments, they, uh, they thwart this whole collectivist idea uh, of learning and they make you into individual bodies who are uh, you know, only interacting with something that comes from anywhere, which has no location. So even teachers then get certain curricula which you know don't don't locate themselves anywhere, and that we think can be really damaging for the whole process of of uh, including and making it democratic and bringing in all children in terms of their understandings and knowledges. One of the major implications of uh, companies, edtech companies, and large corporate players coming into curriculum making also brings in the whole issue of how companies are using big data, how companies, and especially in the global south, how companies use children and children's data uh, as biocapital. Because a lot of these edtech companies are coming and recording without anyone knowing, without the teachers or parents knowing as to what uh, kind of data is being collected. You know, everything, every time a child is online with a device, whether it's a handheld device or a, or, or a laptop or, or a telephone, whatever the school is using or the parents are using, that information is aggregated. And that information then is being sold and commercialized. So this kind of data valence, people now, in fact, we find that people in media studies have questioned this much more than people in education. They are questioning the use of 
children in the global south, children in poor families who are being given wearables or they've been given headbands or they've been given devices, uh, which uh, they do, do not really know the implications of. And uh, this is now then being controlled by, by huge companies and sold off to further uh, for further profit. So this kind of data valence and data collection and also individualization of learning is not something that our, uh, we can afford to go in for or that we need to even understand much better to be able to resist. You know, kind of dystopian uh, picture of uh, uh, data valence uh, you talked about. How is this related to uh, like another sort of famous initiative of daily schools, which is uh, the happiness curriculum. Yeah, yeah. These are again, you know, these are kind of the same branding, advertising, uh, advoc uh, sort of exercises that get done. This is related to happiness. Sounds very nice. Everyone seems very happy, uh, you know. And now there's a happiness industry which talks about mindfulness and which again, brings in so-called research from other places. Uh, unfortunately, some people who also tied to Dalai Lama and you know other initiatives about meditation and things like that. So all this, when it becomes a part of an industry and becomes a part of an industry which pushes for so-called captive audiences like a school, uh, that is where this whole industry is now talking of something as if happiness is not tied to anything that you learn. Happiness should be a part of any classroom. I don't need a curriculum for that. I need the teacher to understand how a learning environment can have, a, a, you know, send meaning for me, can find me a place, can give me a purpose. It doesn't always have to be happy. I mean, I can be, it can be tough for me. It can be challenging, but ultimately that brings me happiness because I feel involved in something that has meaning for me. But it should be for whatever I teach. There can't be a separate modularization and a separate silo under which happiness curriculum is being taught. I mean, our teachers say this. Our teachers say, one, they waste a lot of time. And two, you know, I think that uh, how can I say this child is happy when she has been segregated away into another section has been called weak learner, has been called level so-and-so, and the others, her friends are in another section and she can't even feel that you know she is good enough to be with them so on the one hand you're putting children you're branding them a child can be good at one thing not so good at another thing i can't brand the child as uh, low or weak but uh, so the teachers are saying and our teachers those who are professionally uh, you know they we see that their professional development their teacher education has been of meaningful quality they are the ones who say that this is a waste of time and this is deliberately trying to deflect and distract attention from the more crucial things about what is it that the children need to learn better don't call it basic don't call it foundational they need to learn that better children age eight anywhere need to learn the world of the social world around them critically and to need uh, learn the environmental world around them and why are we depriving them of that so this is, again, one of those ways in which you bring in a lot of branding uh, uh, to say that we're doing great things and you need something great to keep flaunting your uh, uh, system. So entrepreneurship, 
which was sorry really nothing just big you know some money given to every child and said you can become an entrepreneur one of my very experienced teachers met me two weeks back and said it's very sad because now children feel they can become entrepreneurs so they don't have to work very hard for the board exam you know they'll get they'll they'll manage they can you know do anything and they'll become entrepreneurs that's what that's what the sense they've been given it's not important to work hard and strive for higher education so you know again it's it's not leading to a very healthy environment of learning in fact mm-hmm. it's worrying it's worrying because mm-hmm. already we know these the people who are now coming into our public schools except for a few uh, public schools which are the centrally funded ones like the kendriya vidyalayas which have good teachers and very good resources the other public system in our states is mostly for the poor children and so with poor which is still about 70 80% of our of our children but i'm saying if those children are treated with these kinds of deflecting ways of looking at thing and not really understand and focus and learn better what they have to learn and uh, take very superficial tests and you know get segregated and then told that you should go in for i mean a student in class 10 she uh, got a compartment so compartment means that in one subject you can take the exam after two months this is a central board exam and that allows you this space but her principal pushed her out and affiliated her to the open school for what reason how can she do that so you know you've decided this person is slow push them out so that is what is happening and there is not enough data on that we need data on that but it's difficult to get it even people who work on this have to try and because there are no straight data as to where the open school child has come from and large numbers are being pushed out this way just to show that your results this evidence is making it very uh, uh, unequal for children even in unesco in 2005 not just 1990 the quality imperative 2005 report it said exactly that don't do these kind of tests with children children are not wood and planks of wood and nails that you can do cost benefit analysis and input output studies they have agencies children and teachers have agencies and we've gone i've i've quoted that and i've gone by that understanding of what quality means and uh, i asked unesco at some of the meetings even here how come your own discourse has changed so much i'm just saying that this is what's happening with the organizations which stood with the child the most disadvantaged child in terms of their humanist uh, commitment and their understanding of what it meant uh, but if these organizations are are going to literally go the market way um, it's going to be very sad who how how do and and all these partners and all these corporate foundations are not the ones who are going to fight for children's rights and for equity uh, and uh, for better learning they all want just show them some results of some tests and they're not even bothered who is taking the test with what understanding and what is it showing you just need some numbers so who is then there for the majority of our children so you know in fact uh, in september 2022 un secretary general antonio guterres convened transforming education summit in new york and one of the major outcomes of this summit 
was the representation of private sector and private foundations on the SDG4 high-level steering committee. So indeed, this is happening at the highest level of global education policy. And I really do not know how it is even possible to resist or counter the discourse of learning assessment or uh, the push uh, for uh, privatization or digitalization of education. Yes, because you know, all yes. the UN agencies are saying that, you know, it's great yes. that uh, we have all these yes. non-state actors yes. Uh, yes. supporting state education. So, yeah. Absolutely. We found that for the first time in our lives, the, the steering group of our policy and now this, the steering group of our national curriculum framework had no one with any work in curriculum for the first time. And they had people from service providers like this or technical providers. They were in the national curriculum framework steering group, but no one with curriculum. And in 2005, the NCRT director forms a group uh, for this. This time the ministry did it and the national steering, the national curriculum group steering committee, the order said that the NCRT director will assist that group. So just look at the way these institutions are national apex institutions mm -hmm. are being played with. They have to assist these other people out of which they might, they're people who have not worked in curriculum. They can be service providers or whatever it is. So that is, you know, we cannot go on like this. Yes, I agree that we cannot go on like this, but uh, what can we do? Oh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, I well, think like, you know, one... like uh, for junior researcher like uh, Guy Ran, you know, her future work, uh, what she can, you know, what she can do. I think more research on these issues, more writing on these issues, more podcasts. Okay, more ways in which we can bring this out. What is happening? Uh, who are the children? Like everyone says, oh, COVID loss. I mean, there was a lot of, not just loss of the child, the loss, I mean, the child learned a lot about death and about gasping for oxygen and a lot of other things. But there is no no plan to actually see where they are today. How do you support them? And I think I've been just saying we need more testimonies. We need to know what is happening. I During the COVID, I kept talking to the large networks of people on the ground who are working that can we document what is going under the name of digital learning or online classes? Because no one could differentiate whether you're watching a TV or you're doing it on the phone or you're doing it. Everything was called online learning. But can you document what it means? What does it mean for the teacher? What it means for the child? I mean, the child is sitting in front of the screen with hardly anyone showing. In Delhi, my signal gets unstable. What was happening to the signal of so many children? So we need documentation, even if we can't do anything now. In five years, we can change things or whenever we can. We need documentation and questions and deeper analysis, not just numbers. Oh, yes, I completely agree. We need deeper analysis of what's happening on the ground to teachers and students without losing sight of a bigger picture. You know, uh, over 40 years ago, comparative education scholar Robert Alnov 
warned that philanthropic foundations could undermine democratic societies because they represent relatively unregulated and unaccountable concentrations of power and wealth. I think this observation is still relevant, relevant or even more relevant today with the kind of concentrations of power and wealth we are witnessing with the neoliberal penetration of virtually every sector of society, including education. In our case, it's it's not just neoliberal, but you know that the way corporates get in and the way now this whole thrust on ancient knowledge systems. And I mean, I read documents of a state position papers where people are just talking. I mean, they, there's a person from a well-known organization, uh, a research-based organization for health, and he's an associate professor, and he says, Indian body, the physiology is not meant for non-vegetarian food. And this is in the public domain. It's a document on the State Council Education Research and Training. More than 70% of Indians live on, survive on non-vegetarian foods. And he's telling us that our bodies are not made for it. And so children shouldn't be given eggs in their mm -hmm. midday meal. Mm -hmm. And in that state... There is an organization which is tied to a religious organization. I mean, that's a foundation, Akshay, uh, you know, uh, Akshay Patra, which is doing midday meals for about 20,000 or more. I think they mentioned in the GM report. But again, just one line says that, yes, there is some controversy because these, these people protest that their meals are not according to the cultural needs of the child, the cultural relevance. They don't give garlic, they don't give ginger because it doesn't go by their beliefs, but the children don't find the food edible. So, I mean, they, they now get people from well-known organizations in the country to say things like, our bodies are not made for non-vegetarian food and children should not be given egg. So, you know, this is really, really going deep into how it is, uh, uh, it's going to be, it, it's assaulting a child's right and a child's being and a child's identity. Thanks so much for this final insight, Anita. There was indeed a lot to take in and there's so much more to discuss. I believe one of the roles of educationists uh, like yourself, and I see myself as an educationist uh, as well, is to protect education from a capture by narrow interests and ideologies, including neoliberalism, financial capitalism, and religious fundamentalism. These ideologies are today often disguised as science-based policy prescriptions posing various threats to children's right to education and diverse ways of being, knowing, and becoming. With this note, I would like to conclude this episode. Thank you so much again for joining today and see you next time.